to come. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Matt. Isn't that a great story? Don't you love that story? I, I love the, the conclusion of that story. They departed uh, for their home country by another way. Uh, I spoke a couple of years on this same passage. I'm sure all of you remember that very vividly. Uh, and, and spent a lot of the time talking about that last verse. They departed to their own country by another way. At some point during their visit with Jesus, the Magi realized that they can't return by the same way they came. And what is it about that encounter with Jesus? Uh Uh-oh, I'm hearing some smattering of laughter, which means that you're seeing the wise men from uh, the uh, Christmas nativity that we did about three years ago. So this is uh, Jack and Nathaniel and James, our wise men. Uh, Jack was downgraded to the role of a sheep uh, in last month's. uh, (laughs) So I'm not saying that... Anyway, so yeah, here's, here's, a picture. here's a picture of the wise men, uh, and then uh, we have another picture of this, I, I think is the way that the wise man might have looked at the moment he awoke from his dream, warning him to return by another route. Uh, this moment of realization that they couldn't go back to Herod. The Magi set on a journey to, to find Jesus and to worship him, but along the way they become kind of unwitting participants in a plot to to kill him. And if they wanted to pass back through by the same way, uh, through Herod's halls of power, they could have. But something about their encounter with Jesus and his mother, uh, who was, at the time of their arrival, Jesus was, of course, barely articulate, right? He was an infant. Something about that encounter convinced them to resist the allure of earthly power and to return to their home country by another way. 
Now, I uh, preached a sermon on this and I'm trying with all my might to avoid going in the same direction this time because that will really preach uh, my Pentecostal self, which is kind of trapped inside this uh, very stoic uh, case, is just yearning to come out. Um, Thank you. There's a beautiful poem um, from T.S. Eliot. So you know that I'm switching back to my default here when I go to poetry, uh, in which he writes from the perspective of the Magi upon returning from their journey. And this poetic retelling includes a reflection uh, of the Magi's journey to Bethlehem, but also their journey back home by another road. So upon their return, they experience death to their former way of life and the beginning of a new life. So the poem Part of its conclusion goes like this, again from the perspective of the Magi. Were we led all that way for birth or death? This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. Love this poem. Uh, Eliot captures that For the wise men, something about their encounter with Jesus means death to their former way of life. In other words, meeting him changes everything. And what I love so much about the poem is the way that it expands on what the notion of epiphany is. So this morning we're we're celebrating Epiphany Sunday. Uh, After our 12-day celebration of Christmas, we're, we're celebrating the appearance of Jesus to the Gentiles in the form of these wise men, the Magi, who are traveling from the east to visit Jesus. In the world of this poem, after their encounter with Christ, the Magi, uh, there's really nothing that's not an epiphany. This is true not only of the Magi, but also for everyone in the Gospels who encounters Jesus. There's a kind of encounter with Jesus through which it becomes impossible for us to see the world in the same way that we saw it before we met with him. I mean, consider, let your minds kind of run quickly through, through the Gospels. Consider his healings returned home by another way. His exorcisms, they returned home by another way. His feeding miracles, they returned home by another way with full bellies. The incisive questions he, he asked, they returned home by another way, maybe disoriented or reoriented. The invitations to follow him, uh, the way he conducted his table fellowship, They returned home by another way. Are you getting this? So I don't have to preach this message over again. I'm just going to to move on. The good news of the Magi's journey away from Bethlehem is that whatever route you and I came on, Christ, by his grace, makes possible alternative return routes. Aren't you glad for salvation today? In the very next verse, which we did not read in our scripture reading, Matthew recounts another journey that must take place from Bethlehem. So at Epiphany, we're celebrating this journey to Bethlehem. But I want to take a look at maybe these journeys away from Bethlehem. This time, it's the flight of the Holy Family to avoid Herod's wrath. In Matthew 2, uh, we continue in verses 13 through 15. Now, when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. There's a painting that I happened upon this week called The Flight into Egypt. It's by an artist named Henry Owasa Tanner. Uh, He's an African-American artist. He studied in Paris and resided in France for most of his life because of the systemic racism that he experienced. He said something to the effect of, I can't do my art in the midst of this racism. I can't paint and be mistreated at the same time. So he did his art from there, which I think sheds a kind of light on this painting. But Tanner here, and what I love about this painting is the way it kind of imaginatively connects the journey of the Magi toward Bethlehem with the journey of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus away from Bethlehem. So Tanner depicts an unknown figure lighting the way for the Holy Family. This figure is reminiscent of the mysterious star that leads the Magi toward Bethlehem. While we might imagine the Magi with upturned faces toward the star, Tanner depicts the Holy Family with their heads down, as if to avoid detection. And we can barely see Jesus. In fact, we almost have to imagine that he's there. We can't even make him out by squinting. Mary envelops him in her arms so that we've got the light of revelation to the Gentiles prophesied by Isaiah in this rendering kind of shrouded in in darkness. And the great irony here is that epiphany means appearing. It refers to Christ's revelation to the Gentiles, as we've said. And yet, immediately after the first Gentile worship service, when the Magi visit Bethlehem, Matthew informs us of the great lengths to which Mary and Joseph must go in order to keep the Christ child undetected, out of sight, under the radar. I especially love to consider kind of the underwhelming, kind of dim light here in this painting alongside our Old Testament reading for today from Isaiah chapter 60, which is, as you look at the painting, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And Jesus will later refer to himself in John 8 as the light of the world. But before Jesus is ushered in as king, he's smuggled out as a fugitive. And I'd like to land here for a moment in the time that we have remaining and and consider these two departures from Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2, one by the Magi and the other by the the Holy Family. On the heels of the Christmas season, Uh, There's a sense in which you and I are engaged in our own departures from Bethlehem. Uh, We've celebrated the birth of the long-awaited Savior, and now we're challenged to consider and to, more importantly, to try and live lives that bear witness to the difference that the incarnation makes, the difference that it should make in each of our lives. I think Matthew's text can be instructive for us because what Jesus birth in Bethlehem is, for, for both the Magi and the Holy Family, what it, what it signals is, what it sets off is a departure, a, a long and arduous journey, and perhaps not unlike the one 
that we face in our lives of faith. I'm not simply referring here to the, the kind of post-holiday malaise that we may be feeling or the, the long, cold, dreary winter months that lie ahead. I think there's a deeper challenge being levied here as we prepare for our departure from Bethlehem, and it's this. What does it mean to follow Jesus when we have journeyed so long in the life of faith that we feel like we've lost what drew us to Jesus in the first place? Or, or what does it mean to follow Jesus when we've encountered such hardship or grief or perhaps even abuse that we feel like we've left Bethlehem and doubt whether we'll ever return? Or, or how can we follow him uh, when it seems as though the star we had followed to meet him, the way we first encountered him, is, is no longer visible, is no longer available to us? Or when the brightness that drew us to him or that previously sustained our relationship with him has faded and now looks more like uh, the dimly lit torch in Tanner's painting. Or perhaps more simply, uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus after the lights go out? We don't put up Christmas lights at our house, so I don't have to go through the process of taking them down, uh, among other things. But what does it mean to follow Jesus after the lights go out? I want to return to Matthew 2 in a moment, but first I'd like to take a detour uh, through Acts chapter 4. So will you come with me on this detour briefly? Uh, Acts 4 immediately follows the account of, you may remember in Acts 3, Peter and John healing the lame man at the gate. You remember that? Silver and gold have I none. I won't sing the song, but uh, they are proclaiming Christ as Savior and resurrected Lord on the heels of performing this miracle. And they defy orders from Jewish leaders to stop preaching and they're thrown in jail. You remember the story? They're later released from prison with another order to stop preaching, and they return to the other believers to encourage them. So Luke recounts it this way. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. And after they were released, they went to their own people and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, these early believers, they raised their voices to God. And here's what they pray. Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, it is you who said by the Holy Spirit through your ancestor David, your servant, they go on to quote this psalm, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, this is a long prayer that they're praying, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel gathered together against your holy child Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your children to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy child, Jesus. So this flight into Egypt that the Holy Family makes, there are a couple of allusions to Egypt and to the exodus in Egypt in this passage, in the prayer that these early believers pray that I think it's easy for us to miss. So are you still with me? Uh, this is going to be like the hardest part of the message, okay? So... Uh, Hopefully, 
you can follow what's going on here. Hopefully I can convey it clearly. So notice what they're saying here in this extended prayer. They mention Herod and how he tried to strike against Jesus. They're probably referring here to Herod Antipas and Pontius Pilate, who uh, presided over the crucifixion. But this reference, reference to Herod should also bring us back to the Herod who was Herod at the time of Jesus' birth and in his infancy. So draw us back to, to Matthew chapter 2. The allusion to the earlier Herod is especially strong considering the word servant that's used in this, in this prayer in Acts chapter 4 can also be translated child. So we have reference to your holy child, Jesus. So it seems there's almost an intentional hearkening back to Jesus as a child in his flight from that earlier Herod. And not only was Jesus the would-be victim of Herod as a child, but Matthew tells us that there were children who were killed when Jesus was a child, the slaughtering of the innocents, which also then harkens back to the death of the firstborn in Egypt, who die because Israel is delivered from their captivity. So there's this kind of piling up of biblical stories that's happening here. Are you catching all of this? So Acts chapter 4 is tied to Matthew chapter 2, is tied to Exodus chapter 2. There's all of this stuff that's all of these images that are kind of piling up in this prayer. And notice that the believers also pray in Acts 4 that God would stretch out his hand to perform signs and wonders. And this should also take us back to the Exodus narrative. Repeatedly take us back to Egypt repeatedly in the Exodus narrative. There's a, a direct echo of God's repeated command to Moses. If we had time, we could look back at Exodus 7, 8, 9, and 10, and the repeated use of this phrase, Moses stretched out his hand. Many of the plagues that led Israel out of Egypt are preceded by God telling Moses to stretch out your hand. When the Israelites finally do leave Egypt and are pursued by the Egyptian army to the Red Sea, God gives Moses the command the final time. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So again, back to Acts chapter 4, and what do we see? The believers here are praying for signs and wonders that God would stretch out his hand to do signs and wonders, but this time it's not against their enemies, but it's on behalf of their enemies. Consider the beauty of what the early church is doing here. Instead of praying that God would stretch out his hand to, to smite them, to smite their enemies, they're interceding for their enemies. Uh, Christian singer and songwriter Rich Mullins, anybody familiar with Rich Mullins? Seeing some heads nodding. Released a song in 1998 titled My Deliverer. It goes like this. I promised Hillary I wouldn't sing it and bring shame upon our family. <coughs> Joseph took his wife and her child and they went to Africa, to Egypt, to escape the rage of a deadly king. There along the banks of the Nile, they listened to the song that the captive children used to sing. They were singing, my deliverer is coming, my deliverer is standing by. So good old Rich Mullins. I mean, I listened to this in the car as a kid on a Christian music station. There's some real theological depth going on here. This is some pretty sophisticated interpretation for a 90s CCM jam. He's saying, do you catch this? 
that Jesus, even as a helpless infant, hidden in his mother's arms, following that dimly lit torch, is Israel's long-awaited deliverer. He's the new and better Moses. And I think Epiphany, this flight to Egypt, uh, invites us to take one further step. That's perhaps not out of bounds to suggest that Egypt itself was captive to evil and in need of a deliverer. And that deliverer is now here. And what we celebrate at Epiphany is that he has been made known both to Israel and to Egypt, to Jews and Gentiles. In fact, many among the early church fathers were fond of this kind of interpretation. So I'm not standing alone here. Uh, standing on the shoulders of, of others whose names I will struggle to pronounce here as we draw toward a close. Are you ready? <clears throat> Chromatius, that's my best guess, a fourth century bishop from Italy comments on this passage from Matthew's gospel this way. He says, after Egypt's ancient grave sin, after many blows had been divinely inflicted upon it, God, the omnipotent Father, moved by devotion, sent his son into Egypt. He did so so that Egypt, which had long ago paid back the penalty of wickedness owed under Moses, might now receive Christ, the hope of salvation. Egypt, which of old under Pharaoh stood stubborn against God, now became a witness to and home for Christ. An anonymous source from the early centuries of the church comments on the flight of the Holy Family to Egypt this way. He says, just like a doctor, the Lord went down into Egypt that he might visit it as it languished in error. Not that he might stay there, for at first blush, it seems as if he went down into Egypt in flight from Herod. The fact is that he went in order to put to flight the demons of Egypt's error. Isn't that beautiful? Man. St. Peter Chrysologus, a 5th century church father, offers probably the most concise of these summaries and maybe the most moving. He says simply, Christ fled for us, not for himself. I love this reading of the flight to Egypt. Jesus comes to the place where Israel had been enslaved, not only to reenact Israel's deliverance from slavery, but also to enact Egypt's deliverance, to enact the deliverance of the Gentile enslavers. There's a foreshadowing here. I don't think I need to to say this, but just to say it, there's a foreshadowing here of our own deliverance from slavery to sin and ultimately our our deliverance from death. As we draw toward a close, I'm going to show this picture one more time as we... uh, reconsider the flight to Egypt, these three verses that we might be tempted to just run right past, these journeys from Bethlehem. It strikes me also, uh, and I'm going to go off my notes here, and the musicians have already come, so get ready to stand here for a minute longer. Sorry, Olivia and Jen. Uh, In Exodus chapter 14, uh, stretch out your hand, the waters cover the Egyptians, 
you know, the, the scripture reading that's appointed for today on Epiphany Sunday is the baptism. Whew, man, the baptism of Jesus. And the Egyptians are covered by the waters. And those are the waters that Jesus enters into in his baptism. He's come to save even those who pursue his people. So, these two journeys from Bethlehem indicate that the good news doesn't hinge on our faithfulness or on our tenacity or how strong our sense of direction is, thank goodness, or how bright our torch is, or even whether our light seems to have gone out altogether. No, everything hinges on the fact that before we embarked on the journey to find him, he has made a journey to us. He has made a journey to us. All of our journeys to find him, all of our efforts to seek him out, even Herod's efforts to seek him out, (laughs) that he might snuff him out, to kill him. Jesus is already making a journey to other Herods and other lands, that he might save them, that he might redeem them, the very one who's seeking after him, not to find him and worship him, but to find him and kill him. Jesus is on the way elsewhere to other kings who are ready to snuff out other infants, who are ready to commit other atrocities, and he's on his way there to save them, to save us. Uh, We're not always the ones who are faithfully pursuing Jesus, but he is always the one who is faithfully pursuing us. Not just at the cross, but from the very beginning. And this is what the flight to Egypt has to offer for us this morning. So would you stand as we prepare to approach the table? Uh, And we'll make two lines here down the center aisle so you'll hear the words spoken over you as you receive the elements The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements, uh, return to your seats, and receive them there. Let's pray as we prepare to approach the table. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness and the way that you have sought us out. When we have lost our steam, when we have lost the light that has led us to you, uh, when we have abandoned our first love, when instead of following after you, we are wandering and we seem to be and we feel like we are languishing or when we're following you for the wrong reasons. You're not just our destination, but you are at our side. You are behind us. You're pursuing us. You surround us with your love. We give you thanks for that love. As we're on our own departures from Bethlehem, we thank you for hearing our prayers and for hearing even our unuttered prayers. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.